sermon text will be from Acts 13, 1 through 3, and Ephesians 2, 11 through 3, 10. I'll also be reading uh, Acts 2, 5 through 11, and Colossians 3, 11. So first, Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Acts 2, 5 through 11. Now they're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native tongue, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. In Colossians 3.11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And lastly, Ephesians 2, 11, 3 through 10. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down, the, down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can receive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirits. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is the word of God. 
Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning and welcome to Holy Trinity. I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, thank you, Melissa. There's really just two, uh, two passages for the sermon text today, but I thought it'd be really fun to have Melissa have to pronounce all the names and all those other texts. So we gave her just a couple other texts to, to, be, to be able to read. Today we're going to be talking about um, why would a local church have a commitment to multi-ethnic community and unity. That's what we're going to be talking about. And uh, I'm, I'm going to give you, as I did last week, I'm going to give you kind of the main idea right up at the top so that it's not buried too deeply. And I'll put it this way, that in a world of confusion and hostility and lies and brokenness, the Apostle Paul explains and Luke illustrates a Christ-glorifying beauty that is embodied in gospel unity. That was long, I know, but I'll, I'll come back to it so you get it, okay? But we're talking about, uh, I'm going to talk about the kind of unity that Christ provides for us and some of the hostility and complexity in that world. Before we do that, um, I'm just going to give a quick update on space. So a lot of you have been praying and uh, We've been on a, a spiritual adventure since, uh, really since COVID um, hit, and uh, been bouncing from hotel to hotel. The last week has been a spiritual adventure also with a lot of roller coasters up and down. And uh, one of our, our friends from uh, Kenya texted me this morning and said, how's it going with the building? And I kind of texted him back and explained some of the complexity of it and how like there's three trains that are running. And, and uh, if, if those three trains were sequenced, we wouldn't get into a new space until August 1st. But we're trying to keep all three trains running at the same time. And uh, he texts me back and he says, your suitcase was packed for complexity. <laughs> and he said, then he said, uh, uh, complexity is your portion at the moment, but God is sufficient and he will be with you. So that was sweet. But look, quick update here. So we, we signed a, 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 prov a provisional agreement with a landlord for a property at 218 South Wabash, which is approximately uh, this room, except 1,000 square feet smaller. This is 7,000, about the same height of ceilings, except instead of being underground, above the ground with nice light coming in. And uh, another, if this is 7,000, there's another about 5,000 square feet as well for children's ministry and things like that. For the amount that we pay for this on Sundays plus our offices, we can rent that for 24 uh, seven, so be able to be in there for the first time in 23 years, not have to set up chairs every Sunday. Um, so that's huge. On Monday though, in order to do that, we have to, um, have a zoning exemption, which the city has to approve because it's an office building. So they have to say, hey, yes, you can meet here. Well, on Monday, our lawyer who's managing that process sent us a subject, an email, and the subject of which was, we are not going to make the February deadline. Uh, we have a February 18th. We had been told by the city that we had a February 18th um, spot, which when our lawyer heard that, he said, that's 
He didn't say it's a miracle. He said, that's very, very, very unusual. Someone did you a huge favor that never happens in Chicago. Um, it should take about three or four months, and this would have been about five weeks. So on Monday, our lawyer says we're not going to make the deadline. And all of my staff are like, what are you talking about? Yes, we're going to make the deadline. Let's email people to pray. We've turned in all of our stuff. By Tuesday, they said, okay, you're going to hit the deadline. We'll support you. On Wednesday, the chairman of the zoning board said, sorry, you've been taken off of the agenda because um, he wants to restructure things a little bit. And again, we said no. So we emailed our deacons and, and elders and said, would you please pray? And then I called somebody that I know who works in the city. And two hours later, they said, oh, you're back on the agenda again. So 19 days from now, we'll know if, the, if we can meet in this new space. And uh, in addition to that, this is a second train, the, the, own, the landlord started working on the property. And our elders told him, we will invest $22,000 into this property, and that's it. Because it's going to cost about 100000 but we said we're not going to invest that if we can't rent it. It doesn't make any sense. But we will gamble because we have to be out of here on April 1st. So he comes back two days later and said, sorry, you spent your 22000 or we've already done that. So we need to up the price. Another twelve or 13000 I said, well, let me talk to my leaders, our leaders, and talked to a couple people and said, came back and said, sorry, we're staying at twenty two. If you want to keep doing the renovation, which he had already started, please do so at your own expense. We'll pay you back if we rent it from you. Anyway, he said, okay, and he's continuing to work. So mostly want to say that we're on this spiritual adventure, depending on the Lord, looking for open doors, hoping that he has uh, an open door for us. It's 218 South Wabash. Please keep this in prayer if you would. In 1969, I was three years old and moved to Chicago for the first time. Um, I moved from a house on what was called Wakeman Street that had a big backyard and a big front yard, and it was one of those small white ranch homes. And I remember playing in the backyard with some of my friends, and then when we moved to Chicago, I moved from a big yard to a small apartment and moved from playing in a backyard to, well, actually, I remember Oz Park, even though I was only three years old. <laughs> and the kind of kaleidoscope of international people that were there. And it sort of imprinted on me at a very young age the kind of beauty of the kaleidoscope of God's diversity in the world. And I, obviously, I was only three, so I don't remember very much. Um, at the same year, this, so this is one year after, this is 1969, one year after um, Martin Luther King Jr. was killed in 1968. My parents were uh, these late 20s hippies. Uh, they were very influenced by the radical 60s um, and looked at, they looked just like hippies. My dad's hair was down in the middle of his back. My mom had a buzz and uh, they participated in marches and all that, whatever. But they were trying and experimenting with a small multi-ethnic church. Um, and one of the people that they came to know who's African-American was a medical student at the University of Chicago. And three or four white individuals dragged him from a car 
and he was murdered. 1969. And somehow it imprinted on my parents uh, a sense of the injustice of the world, a sense of the need for a new picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I tell you that story just because there's one word in the text that I want to touch on, which is hostility. It's a picture of hostility between the races, which the Ephesians passage says that Jesus Christ came to tear down. And I want to speak today on a biblical vision for multi-ethnic unity and multi-ethnic community. And ask this at the beginning, is that, is that an idea that's just borrowed from the progressive left politically? Because it's trendy? <laughs> okay, thank you, Larry. Is it utopian? Is it impractical? And I have two premises uh, for today. The first one, I've, I've hinted at both of them, but one is that we live in a world of deep confusion, hostility, lies, and brokenness in every area including race and ethnicity. And the second one is, as I've already stated, that in a world of deep confusion, hostility, lies, and brokenness, Paul explains and Luke illustrates the Jesus-glorifying beauty of what I'll call embodied unity, where people take in their body, in their community, a commitment to love those who are other than them, so to speak. And part of my premise is that the expressions in the world for tremendous diversity isn't bridged by our politics and that it's not actually a worldly yearning, but it's really a yearning for the kingdom of God to be united by Christ the blood of Christ. The structure for this morning is this. I'm going to talk about some of the realities of race and ethnicity in our culture today that'll show you some of the challenges about what I'm talking about. Okay, So that's reality. Then I'm going to show you some of the reasons from the Bible for multi-ethnic unity and community. And then very quick at the end, just a bit of a response. Okay, So that's where we're going. Pray with me if you would. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And pray that you'd guide us out of our confusion, that you'd heal us from our hostility, that you'd liberate us from our lies, and that you'd give us a taste of your beauty that brings wholeness out of our brokenness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, so first of all, some of the realities or challenges. Um, under this premise that we live in a world of, of deep confusion, lies, hostility, and brokenness in this area, the first... Um, main point that I want to say here is that this is one of the most controversial, inflammatory, and divisive topics today. And uh, as I make each point, I'm going to give you a quick therefore, and my therefore here is therefore, please give me your patience, <laughs> because this is a very explosive topic. Some of you may already be offended that I'm talking about race or ethnicity at church, because you believe it's a political topic. But part of what I would argue is that there, this is such a divisive topic because Christians themselves 
are so shallowly trained on the theology of what I'm about to talk about and so saturated with a political understanding of it. So I'm going to try to show you some of the biblical reasons for what I'm talking about. Um, second reality is this, that I, I'm going to argue that there's three kinds of people that are listening today. Welcome to those of you who are watching online. Um, and I'm just going to outline who these who this kind of three groups are. So one, one group of people today in North America, Christian and non-Christian, one group says race and ethnicity doesn't matter. We don't need to talk about it. We're kind of done with that. And the Christian version of it is race and ethnicity doesn't matter because Jesus is Lord and he's transcended all that. That's one version, okay? A second, I'll call that, call that perspective A. Perspective B says race and ethnicity is everything. Race and ethnicity is determinative of all of your behaviors. All right, so one says it doesn't matter. One says it's everything. And I, I could give you examples for this, but I won't at the moment because I'm going to keep moving. So perspective C, which is the perspective that I hold, is that race and ethnicity actually really does matter and Jesus is Lord. In other words, race and ethnicity, race is a social construct that has been made up for a variety of reasons, but ethnicity is actually a biblical concept. And it's a way of demonstrating the beauty and the majesty of who Jesus is because he's not the king just of the Jews, but of every tribe and nation and tongue. So I'm saying that I believe some of the reasons why people talk past each other today is because some people are saying, hey, why talk about race and ethnicity so much? Let's just get past that. That's A. B says, man, it's everything. The first group emphasizes 1776. We're founded on a, on a, 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 a country that, that ha is, is founded on ideals. The second one tends to emphasize 1619 and that we're founded with slavery. The third perspective says, look, 1619 is a real thing. 1776 is a real thing. And it makes for a very complex country. But race and ethnicity does matter. But Jesus Christ is king and Lord overall. So those are, I just want you to hear those three perspectives. And you may be, I also want to, here's the therefore. Therefore, let's love one another. Okay? In other words, everybody, whatever category of those three that you are, so glad you're here today. And if you're A or B, I know you're wrong, but I'm kidding. If you're, if you're A or B, I, that's great. And most of the last two years, for me, in personal conversations, has been meeting with people who are in the A category, trying to understand each other better, and in the B category, trying to understand each other better. So a lot of what I've given in the last two years to, of my life to personally is meeting with people and my methodology is let's meet three times at least so we can understand each other in the first meeting, go deeper in the second meeting, and then kiss and make up in the third meeting, whatever, you know. So I just wanted to set that out there because I wanted you to hear how we talk past each other. Reality number three, so one is this is an explosive topic. Two is there are different perspectives, and that's great. <laughs> let's love each other. The third one is that Chicago is one of the most socioeconomically and racially segregated and violent large cities in the country. 
with deep, deep unhealed racial wounds and deep, deep racial trauma. My therefore in this one is therefore we need to pray. Another way to say that is this isn't only about individuals. If you're a Christian, you believe that there are supernatural powers that exist. And the New Testament makes it very clear that those, new, those supernatural powers which exist are actually what is behind the racial animosity and hatred in our world. So for John Burge, who's a police officer in Chicago, to torture 118 young men and never be sentenced until, until about 20 years later and him to be in jail for four years. And this week, Chicago gets to pay $14 million to pay off one of the people that he tortured. So your taxpayer money, all I'm saying is that is demonic. It's horrific. So uh, it's explosive topic that needs patience. It's a confusing topic that needs love. It's a spiritual topic that needs prayer. Fourth reality is, this is a little technical, so stay with me, is that race and ethnicity are related, but they're different things. That race is a human social construct. That is not, it's not biologically rooted, but it's very common today. Whereas ethnicity is very close to a Hebrew term in the Old Testament and a Greek term in the New Testament. And the Hebrew term in the Old Testament is the word goyim. And the Greek Testament, the, the, the Greek word in the New Testament is ethne. So Old Testament, let the peoples praise you, O God. Psalm 67, verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you is the word goyim, and it means not just non-Jew, but it means every cultural linguistic group that exists. In other words, it's saying that the glory of God will not be fully revealed until every cultural linguistic group praises him. That's the word goyim in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the word is ethne, or ethnos, and every time you see the word Gentile or nations in the New Testament, that's the word ethne. <laughs> so when Paul says he, he is an apostle to the Gentiles, it means non-Jew, but it also means all of the people groups of the world who have their own culture and their own language who don't yet know Christ. So a lot of us misread our Bible because we don't understand that. Have you ever been to a, uh, a grocery store? And then they have an ethnic section. And you're like, what? what is an ethnic section, right? It's just food that's different from what I grew up with or what, right? And the word ethnic comes from the word ethne in the New Testament. That's where it comes from. And what it really means is all of the beauty that is represented in every cultural group, close to what it says in in um, Revelation 7, 9, a people from every nation and tribe and tongue. That is the word ethne, ethne there. 
So it is a tiny bit pejorative because it's what Jews would say about the other people. Goyim became a, 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 a pejorative term for the others. Kind of like uh, the, Bab- the, the Babylon, sorry, the uh, barbarians were the people who talk like ba 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 ba. From a Roman perspective, they're like the the unsanitized of the world, so to speak. And there's a kind of othering that happens when we go into a grocery store and you say, "This is the ethnic food." Okay. From the Apostle Paul's perspective. The ethnicity is the people of God across all of the world that have tremendous beauty and something to teach us all. So anyway, I just wanted to to clarify that race and ethnicity are sometimes used synonymously, but ethnicity is a highly biblical term and race is not, okay? So explosive topic, we need patience. Confusing topic, we need love. Spiritual topic, we need prayer. Precise topic, so I'm asking you for deep understanding, okay? Go back and reread your Bible and see, oh, wow, that's really the word for ethnic there instead of Gentile, or the word for ethnic instead of nation. Last one is this, last reality, is the work of multi-ethnic community is extraordinarily challenging today because of biblical shallowness, because of confusion, lies, hostility, and cultural noise and racial wounds. Let me put it this way. In 2016, the possibility, before 2016, the possibility of a multi-ethnic church was something warmly regarded by our culture. After 2016, for various political reasons, a multi-ethnic church became at least three times harder to implement. And New York Times wrote an article about how, how black and brown brothers and sisters were leaving multi-ethnic churches quietly. After George Floyd died, as Jamar Tisby put it, it's time to leave loud instead of leaving quietly. And some of my brothers and sisters, one of my African-American brothers said, it's not just that it's gotten harder. Many leaders today, many African-American or Latino leaders would say, get out of that space. It's not healthy which is also to say it's about 300 times harder after George Floyd's death than it was before 2016. Just want to make it a challenge for you, okay? And if it's helpful to have a few questions after this, we can, but I'm going to keep going. This topic needs patience. This topic needs love. It needs prayer. It needs deep understanding, but it also needs commitment, which is that last therefore. It's not like you like slip into a multi-ethnic existence. You can, if you start a church with a multi-ethnic core, it will become multi-ethnic. If you start it with 37 white people and then say, 2005, let's throw a hand grenade into this community and blow it up, then it's, it's much harder. So it takes commitment. And some of you might leave Holy Trinity downtown because you're not up for this commitment. And that's, that's great. Well, it's not great, but you know, but could we still be friends? All right, that's, that is my, those are my uh, realities. And uh, I'll, I'll put it this way on the last one. Therefore, I ask you for sacrifice. 
meaning it takes a commitment to get out of your comfort zone. Those are the challenges and the realities. Now I want to give you some reasons for building multi-ethnic community. They hopefully won't be as a, much of a downer as the last five reasons were. These are mostly from Ephesians 2 and mostly from Acts 13. So what I'm going to argue under this second header is, under reasons, is that the Bible describes and Paul explains and Luke illustrates a Christ-glorifying, a Christ-exalting beauty to embodied unity. That's what I want to argue, and I'm going to give you a few reasons why we should work towards multi-ethnic unity and community. And the first one is this, to get ready for heaven, because you're going to be with a whole bunch of people who don't speak your language and who are different from you. So start practicing now, right? Revelation 7, and after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, ethnos. In other words, every ethnicity is there. From all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What language are they going to say that in? Probably English, right? <laughs> Maybe not. Well, probably not. If it's every, he just said, all tribes and you can spend, you'll spend the rest of eternity meeting somebody from an Ibu tribe and saying, tell me about how Jesus came to your tribe. You'll meet somebody from Paulo Gallo's tribe, the Luo. Tell me how the gospel came to your little fishing town in northern Kenya. That's what heaven is going to be like. Lots of stories, lots of food, lots of singing. Lots of ethnic food, right? So get ready for heaven. Like, might, might as well start practicing. Why should you work at multi-ethnic community and unity? To get ready for heaven. <laughs> Secondly, because Jesus died for a multi-ethnic church, or Jesus died for a multi-ethnic community. That's a little strong way of saying it. But this is from, this, you can turn to Ephesians now if you want to follow along. In the book of Ephesians, Paul argues that Jesus is the clue to all the mysteries of the world. And he speaks of a kind of unity that's going to come. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, he says, You rebels have been made one with the almighty God of the universe. God, because of the great love with which he loved you, sent his son. But Ephesians 2, 11, to 3.10 says, not only has God unified himself to humanity, he has united humanity and all of its ethnicities into one, what he calls new body, which you might call a new society. And his argument is this, that the blood of Jesus brings down the wall of hostility. His argument is that only something as strong as the cross, or as weak as the cross, the only, only something like the Son of God crucified, God being, the pain, the hostility was so deep 
that God had to die to unify us. Here's what it says in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off, that's the goyim, that's the nations, that's the ethne, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Where is peace going to come in this world? This is saying, through Christ, who has made us both one, that is Jew and goyim, and broken down the wall of flesh, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. And it goes on, it says, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. What he's arguing in that passage is that God had a plan to take all these different national groups, all these sociolinguistic groups, and make them into one new society, one new community. But the only way to do that, from his perspective, was through the blood of Jesus. Now, sometimes what happens in our culture today is they say, hey, man, why don't you just preach the gospel? You're getting into all these social issues all the time, you know? Talking about race, talking about ethnicity. Yeah, but here the gospel says it breaks down the wall of hostility. Like, that's part of the gospel. That's an implication of the gospel. Paul believes that there's earthly beauty to display the finished work of Christ in our relationships. So my, here's my therefore for this, this point. So live to embody the peace of Jesus that has broken down the walls of hostility with people who are different from you. Live to embody that. So one, why, why work at multi-ethnic unity and community? One is to get ready for heaven. Two, to embody the the unity that, that Jesus has already purchased. So Jesus died for multi-ethnic unity. Secondly, Paul is suffering for multi-ethnic unity. That's what his point is in chapter 3, verse 1. He's saying, do you think I wouldn't be in jail right now if I didn't care that God is calling people from every tribe and nation and tongue. He's saying, I'm in prison, for heaven's sake. They locked me up because I went to people who were the outsiders. I went to the, to the ethnic aisle, so to speak. He's saying, they locked me up for it. In other words, he's saying, Jesus is willing to suffer for it. I'm willing to suffer for it. Can you guess what my therefore is here? Thank you. Lawrence. It's worth suffering for. Doesn't seem like it, right? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you, ethne, is what he says. Jesus suffered to create this unity Paul suffered to put it on display. Let me go to reason number four. So to practice for heaven, Jesus died for it. Paul is suffering for it. Reason number four, and this is also from Ephesians, why we should commit to embody multi-ethnic unity is that it displays the wisdom of God to a watching world. Multi-ethnic unity displays the wisdom of God to a watching world. This is in Ephesians 3.10, and I want to show you something really cool about 
one of the uh, words there. So it says, so that through the church, he's arguing that he gets to preach. Let me pause for a second. Paul is saying that he has a twofold job description. One is to proclaim that God is doing this unbelievably mysterious thing. And two, his job is to build a church that reflects it and illustrates it so that the sermon illustration matches the point of the sermon. That's what he's actually saying. And he's like, I get to do that. My job is to go and show that everybody's welcome, all are welcome. And then he says, so that through the church, then he says, the manifold wisdom of God. Drill down into that word manifold, and it means the multicolored wisdom of God. He's saying that the church is to display the multivariegated or multicolored wisdom of God. You can't quite see it in the English there because it says manifold, but it literally means super colored. Now, it's not saying the church has to be super colored. It's saying that God's wisdom is super colored. If you look beyond the superficial worldly forms of unity and long and display and worship God for his wisdom through the blood-bought embodied unity. And a long time ago, I illustrated this this way. Have you ever been to the Shed Aquarium? Raise your hand if you've been to the Shedd Aquarium. Raise your hand if you've been to the Planetarium. It's in the museum campus, and, and Nick works there. Raise your hand if you had a fish when you were growing up. Raise your hand real high. How many fish did you have? You walk into the Shedd Aquarium, and they have this like ginormous, huge tank. And you walk into it, and there's not just one. How boring would it be if they had goldfish? Like three kinds of goldfish, though. Like... Dark gold, light gold, and medium gold. People would walk in and go, man, those goldfish though, right? Instead, they have, I looked this up for a long time, okay? A flat-nosed look-down fish who looks arrogant. A princess parrot fish. A saucer-eyed porgy complete with big eyes. Listen to this one. A buck-tooth parrotfish with a humorous beak-like mouth. I'm not making this up. These are the actual fish, okay? The long-snouted butterfly fish. Here's another one. The neon blue swimmer. So Paul is so bored with the gospel just going to the Jews. He's like, he wants to, this is for all of the multi- variegated peoples of the world that show the multi-variegated wisdom of God. Like how creative would God be if he made three kinds of goldfish and that's it? Man, what a God. Dark gold, medium gold, light gold. The green moray eel is six foot three inches and it's not green but blue but it excretes a yellow mucus all over its body so that it appears green and slimy to the touch. You know the person who made that fish. This is not to mention the majestic angelfish, the sling-jawed rassy, 
the lemon peel angelfish, the Picasso triggerfish with his postmodern artwork, the stars and stripers puffer, the guitar fish that looks like a guitar, the green sawfish which grows to 20 feet and has a snout that looks like a saw, the 175 pound green sea turtle whose name is Nickel because they found a 1975 nickel in our throat. The wonder of the church of, God, of Jesus Christ is all of her variegated wonder. And what God did is took the fish of the Jews, that one fascinating species, and he preserved them in their own little tank for a long time, protected by their wall of glass, and then he shattered it. And he threw in among them the fish of every nation, Italians, Greeks, Kenyans, Nigerians, Australians, the Dutch, Albanians. Isn't that the kind, kind of community you want to be a part of? And they all exist together. They somehow all swim in their variegated beauty to the awe. This is what the text is saying, is that the demons and the angels, after Jesus died and created the New Testament church, the demons and the angels went, oh my gosh, how did he do that? Because the demonic powers were working overtime to keep everybody divided, to have the Jews call the non-Jews dogs and to hate them. And so when Jesus did what he did, they all went, <laughs> That's something else. And if the spiritual authorities will see that, the argument of Ephesians is that the earthly authorities will see it as well. Because the, the way that our world works is that we hate each other. And yet God brings peace. One last one, and I'll be quick on this one. One more reason. This is from Acts 13, and I could spend a long time there, but Luke is intentionally, so I said Paul's explaining, and Luke is illustrating the miniature <laughs> aquarium. And instead of saying, look, it's all the disciples who are all Jews, he says, nope. Simeon called Niger, a black man is there at the table. Lucius from Cyrene, who's from North Africa, Manian, a tetrarch, who's one of Herod's lifelong childhood friends. What he's saying is, we, you are not in Kansas anymore, Toto. You're a long way from Jerusalem. You've never seen The Wizard of Oz? Okay, then you should watch it. But Luke is saying that the multi-ethnic community of prayer in Antioch, Antioch gave birth to the first great church planting movement in history. So my therefore there is, therefore seek the face of God as they sought the face of God. So those are five realities and five reasons, and now I just want to call you on a response, okay? And as I do, I want to just bring the picture of this nameless friend of my parents, who was killed and remind you that Jesus knows his name. I think you'll meet him in heaven.
and you can hear his story. But in order to bring down the wall of hostility, Jesus surrendered his life to the powerful Roman authorities, to, the, to his brothers and sisters, the Jews, who hated, them, hated him. And he gave everything. So the call is really for us to say, if this is part of the gospel, if it's part of the gospel, to embody the unity that Christ has already secured, but is so fragmented in our world, then what can you do? What can I do to get out of my comfort zone a little bit? To make your dinner table include someone that it might not normally include? To do what Jesus did last week and start a conversation with someone that required him to cross a gender barrier, a race barrier, a religion barrier, a socioeconomic barrier, and a moral barrier because he had the waters of eternal life to give. So he just started a conversation. I want to balance as we close on the response between giving everything, which is what Jesus gave, and taking a tiny little baby step wherever you can to help to embody what Jesus has already accomplished, what Luke illustrates, what Paul explains, but what our culture is confused about, what the world is hostile about, what Satan lies about, and yet is something amazing when people who should hate each other hold their arms up together and say, we're one because of what Christ has done for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you for your creativity and your diversity and all that you've created, Lord. We know that Jesus went off the map into Samaria into a spot that he shouldn't have been in, that he wandered into territory that was uh, unfamiliar. And we pray, Lord, that you would knock down our walls of hostility, that you would knock down the walls of hostility in our hearts, our prejudice, our anger and our hatred. And we ask for a miracle, O oh God. We ask for a miracle like you did in Antioch to live out the beauty of what Jesus has already accomplished but is so forgotten in our confused and hostile and distorted and busy world. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.